That was great. You really took the one <laughs> sentence line that I told you guys this week and just ran with it. So as you, right? No, very good. Very good. And, and that is the overarching point. And you nailed it on the head three times in a row. Like, right? We'll see about the fourth one. Luckily, I picked that one. So I think we should be okay. But all the children dismissed. All right. All the rest of you are looking at the back of your bulletins at the title of what today's sermon is. And you see that word diffident. And you're like, is that a typo? Is did he mean different? Did did he mean that? Did did he mean that word, or was he thinking of something else? I'm so confused. Is that what that means? What what is it? What goes on? So that confusion is exactly what that word means. <laughs> There's choice of confusion or uncertainty or confidence. And so, brothers and sisters, we are in this world, but we are not of it. We our citizenship is now in heaven as Christ's disciples and as Christ's followers. And yet, in this world, we constantly face all those other fancy words that are included in the back of the bullets in the scripture. Like there's fear, there's wrath, there's harm, there's the uh, wishes, there's requests. There's we, we live in a world that is filled with doubt, in a world that is filled with uncertainty. The word if describes us really well because it's always conditional. Everything is conditional. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Very rarely do we see the true agape of God, the love of God expressed throughout us at all because it's sacrificial. It doesn't want anything in return. It does it simply because, well, he loves because it's the right thing to do. And there's not expecting anything back in return. And so, in our lives and in our world, we have doubt. But now that we know the Lord, there ought not be any doubt in our lives. And so, this story today, you're going to see. And everybody thinks they're really in control of their life. And they're really in control of their destiny. And I, man, if you read this chapter, you're like, uh, there's nobody in control of nothing but God. Like, because it all just flips and happens so incredibly fast, and that you can be on the right path, and next thing you know, it's different. So, make sure you stand on that solid ground that is Christ. Make sure your identity is securely fastened in Him. Make sure you understand His grace and how that is promised, and His unmerited favor in our lives is secure. God promises to care for us. It's a promise of God. The entire Bible speaks of his promises of redemption and salvation, first and foremost, and then all the other promises. But he cares about us, and he called us back. And his mercy, his forgiveness, he has forgiven us. Perfect love casts out fear. In the scope of our relationships, his perfect love casts out the fear that we're not going to be good enough. Because the reality is, is you're all not good enough. I'm not good enough. No one in this room is good enough. No one meets God's standard of holiness on their own. No one. <clears throat> we need his mercy. And it's given to us. And it's promised to us. And it's sure footing that you can't. I know. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm a little worried I'm going to go through the floor. But <laughs> all in all, again, 
stand on Christ, the solid rock. So, dear Heavenly Father, as always, I thank you for all the blessings in our lives, especially those that we fail to see. And so, Lord Jesus, uh, in this time and in this moment, let us see you. Let us experience you. Let us uh, continue to appreciate the grace that you've given us. Let us continue to appreciate the love you've shown us and the mercy you've given us. And certainly, uh, let us continue to find ways to, well, let us continue to experience your changes in our lives, and then let us find ways to, to use that to the glory of you, for the benefit of others, and of course, for the benefit of ourselves. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, chapter 7 of Esther. It's only 10 verses. This is good. So, the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he? who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Hollywood would probably love for someone to come up with a story like this with the twists and the turns and things. You just can't make these stories up. Like you have to experience them. And it, again, the beauty of our lives is we've all been through some crazy situations and circumstances. And sometimes we even wonder how we got through those crazy situations and circumstances. But Lord willing, we did, obviously. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. So. We see this, and again, real-life people, real-life situations. Well, the best part about this book, and, and as people have said and they always make mention of, is that it doesn't really mention anything about God in and of itself. It's about a group of people that are exiled, that are taken 
you know, from their homeland, now live in another country. They, you know, have to submit to their rulers under that country, not denying their God. But at the same time in this, I'm not seeing Esther as a moral example. I'm not seeing Mordecai as a moral example for me. I'm not seeing any of these people as moral examples for me. What I'm seeing in them, not the moral example, I'm seeing, oh, they're real people like you and me that constantly make mistakes, that constantly stumble, that constantly fall, that you know want and, and have hearts that want to do well but not necessarily have those opportunities. Or maybe once they get those opportunities, they like stranglehold that opportunity and end up destroying it anyway. And so real people in, in this moment. And so verses 1 to 3 really kind of sum up a lot of this. You see simply that they went in, and then the king is like, what's your wish? What is your wish? And then he's like, what's your request? And then Esther goes in and says, well, if I've found favor in the king's eyes. And there's always those ifs. And it's always those words like wishes. Do you know another word for wish is hope? I hope you guys come over. I hope you enjoy this sermon. I hope, I hope, I hope. And it's filled with doubt. But as we've talked about before, and especially as we're going through hope in the series, hope in Christ is not filled with any semblance of doubt whatsoever. In fact, it contains 0.0% doubt. There is none. The problem with the doubt that we might have is that it stems and comes ultimately from us. It's within our nature. It's a natural expression for us to doubt because, well, we're sinners. And we're bent to ourselves. And as we're bent to ourselves, our expectations are high. Our motivations are high. What do we want out of this world? What are we going for? And then I guess the list goes on. And so wishes, false, hope, empty promises. We've got requests. They're not necessarily granted. That's why it's a request. I wish they'd do that request I gave them. Again, Continuing to see where I'm going with this. And favors is the same thing in the same way. And let's be real about the favors. Why is the king nice to the queen? Is it because it's just the right thing to do? Or is perhaps there an ulterior motive in there for the king to please his queen? Happy wife, happy life. Anybody hear that? No? Okay. All right. I don't know why I went there, but I just did. Now my wife's giving me the, oh, I'm in trouble now. Darn, darn, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> oh, this is great. Oh, yeah, I hope you like that. <laughs> Again, do you see the doubt? Do you see the uncertainty? you see the stress that any of us can be under in that moment? And as they're real-life people, Esther, and what's kind of beautiful about this chapter, too, is within a matter of minutes, both Esther and Haman face death. Really, Esther and all the Jewish people are facing death, and then Haman very quickly faces death and doesn't have a lot of say-so in what happens to him after the fact. Certainly, we seem to think that he had a lot of say-so to begin with, but in this moment, there's very little to work on and to work with. And so, again, see those doubts, and then... Here's what's even more about this doubt-filled extravaganza. In verse 4, Esther repeats what the edict said. 
to the T. And in fact, the edict is from chapter 3, verse 13. And it says, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Esther repeats the exact edict that the king's signet ring was on, and that the king himself, in his perhaps inebriated stupor, gave to Haman in order to expand this. And then the most controversial thing, if you ask me, then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? Be like, point right at the king. Ding, 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 ding. But she's got some tact. Praise the Lord that she's been given some knowledge in how to deal with the king and his foolishness. Because if the king honestly had a head on his shoulders, most of these probably wouldn't have happened. But because we're all left to our own way and because, well, the sin of self makes life all about us, the king truly only worries about himself. And being brought up in that lifestyle, I don't know how you can really expect him to be any different when since day one everyone has been kissing his boots, to put it nicely. And so when everyone is kissing your boots and being nice to you all the time, yeah, it's all about you and it's been about you. I want to give the king grace, but I also want to be like, man, you got to know what you're doing. <laughs> You've got an edict out there to kill a race of people that Haman suggested to you because, well, you didn't think of this yourself. And in fact, if we go back, you'll see that the king really doesn't think for himself at all. It's constantly the other people chirping in his ear, and then he moves forward. And that still happens even in this passage, how it moves forward. Now, this verse 5, and what I said, confidence in people. Here you have a king, you have a leader, you have a ruler. I certainly always encourage us, as Scripture says, to pray for our leaders, whether you like him them or not. doesn't matter to me. They are our leaders. They're anointed or chosen by God. If God did not want them to be leaders, then they would not be leaders. Very simple. Very truthful. Just the same. But it's within this confidence in people that there's tons of doubt. How, how can you trust this king who puts out an edict and then doesn't even realize that, hey, I put out that edict? And he's like, who would do this thing? And again, Esther repeats it to the T, what the edict is, so that I would hope that the king would know this. But he doesn't in this. And so, grace. Grace, grace, grace. The word favor in the scriptures here is actually the word grace. Now, it does not mean God's grace. But I also want you to see how the king responds to the queen. Up to half my kingdom it will be granted. So he asks, what's your wish and what's your request? And both of those are doubt-filled statements, right? But look what he follows them up with after he says that. It shall be granted you. And 
Uh, even to the half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. That's that grace. That's that unmerited favor. Now the king, again, this is circumstantial. King, queen, husband and wife working together. There's reciprocation. Okay? This isn't just because it's the right thing to do. There's always an assemblance of reciprocation in all of our human relationships. Especially on Mother's Day, mother and child, there's a reciprocation. You both get something out of that relationship. And so, very similarly in that relationship too. So we can see what grace is, but now you really need to understand God's grace. Because the importance and the beauty of God's grace is that you didn't earn it. You didn't do anything for it. Tell me, what can you do for God that he can't do for himself? I'm waiting. We could be here a while. Hopefully none of you have plans today. Okay. The point, and I hope that just sunk in, is that God's grace is his unmerited favor. And it's not deserved, it's not earned. This is the fundamental problem with religion, is that you think you've earned something from God, a holy and righteous God, and that now he has to serve you. But grace says otherwise. Grace says, I chose you on the very simple fact that I love you. You can't pay me back anything in return. There's no way for you to pay me back anything in return. I'm the creator of heaven and earth and everything that's in it. That includes you. God has complete sovereign control. God has complete abilities to use and to do as he desires in this entire planet. But his unmerited favor, his grace, as it's properly defined, is given to us as a free gift. By grace alone, by his unmerited favor alone, through faith alone, which is a gift as well, in Christ alone, we are saved. In that broad statement, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, where's our role? What do we do in this? And perhaps, insofar as it depends on us, maybe we can be grateful. <laughs> that would be maybe step one. But we don't see that necessarily out of us, let alone other people. We see a lot of, I want, I want, I want. God says he should do for me because I say and I want. But that is so far from the case of what we can live with. And so, in this, we all have choices. We all have choices we can make. We live in the world of wishes and favors and requests. We live in this world. We deal with them every day. In fact, I tried to stop using the word hope and substitute it for the word wish, and I just sounded really stupid for like a week. And then I'm like, forget it. I got to use the word hope. Like, I wish you would all come over. Like, it, it, it doesn't flow and, and it doesn't work. And so I have to use the word hope. But I also, at the same time, I'm like, punching myself in the stomach because I'm like, this isn't the definition of hope. This is uncertainty. This is doubt. This is wrong. 
oh, the hope in Christ is secure. There's no doubt in it whatsoever. Why can't I use that word hope to mean this word? And then again, we're in this world, but we're not of it. I understand and I have that hope in my Lord and Savior, and I hold on to that and I cling to it because this world is a mess and it's filled with uncertainty and doubt. And as much as I want to think I'm in control, I have control over so very little. <sighs> I can't even like make my heart pump and not pump if I wanted to. I could try to make myself stop breathing, but the natural reflexes in my body are going to be like, breathe, you idiot. And then I do. <laughs> and so, in this world, would you rather have an open-ended, doubt-filled life or live in confident assurance? It's kind of a dumb question, right? Like, why even give us that questionnaire? It's like, why would you use the word diffident? I don't even know what that means. Of course you don't want an open-ended, doubt-filled life. But the reality is, is you lived in a doubt-filled world. But the greater reality is, is you live in a confident Savior. You live within that reality. You are, and your citizenship is in heaven with God. But for some reason, we still want to play in the doubt world. And we don't embrace that calling that they've given us. And so, we live in this realm of doubt, but we've received forgiveness by grace. We can walk in confidence as opposed to diffidence in this world. We can hold fast to these promises of God, which are more valuable than any jewels or any gold that you have in your possessions and in your life, because they are filled with hope and they are filled by love. Because if God didn't love us, you would never experience grace. God would be right to destroy this planet and everyone in it. He is justified to do so. And yet you're like, oh, you can't do bad things to good people. You missed the point. There's no such thing as a good person. We're all filled with doubt. We're all filled with sin. We all have our own hidden, uncommunicated expectations. And we're all typically willing to do whatever it takes to get what we think we want. And then sadly, once we get what we want, then we want something else. Oh, it's like the cycle of sin just never ends and never stops until God reaches in and offers grace and reveals the reality of the truth to his life. Amen on that. And then we get to the second part and the second point. In verse 6, we see fear, fear of death. And as I stated already, both Esther and the Jews and Haman have faced death like literally in the last five minutes, <laughs> together at one point in time, until he actually passed away. And so Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Yeah, who isn't terrified of death? Death isn't natural. It never was natural for any of us. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, we're eternal because God's eternal. And then once sin entered the world, well, that's when death entered the world as well. And so once sin and death entered this world, yeah, there's a fear of death. And you know why ultimately there's that fear of death? Even among the brethren sometimes, like true Christians, 
most who are mature understand this, and there is no fear of death because you know who you are, you know where you're going, but it's always that uncertainty. For whatever reasons, we don't trust the promises of God that he's going to carry us home. And so there's this fear of death, fear of something happening to us. But that's the reality. Like, How can you be fearful of something that's guaranteed to happen in your life? And yet we are, and how it happens and, and everything else. So Haman's not, again, real people, real experiences. I really enjoyed this book for that. And then the king, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking even. Can you believe that? The guy got up from the table drinking his wine to be like, I'm upset. This is like the most animated we've seen the king. He's like, oh, oh. And really, he's left with a terrible dilemma because he trusted Haman, right? He trusted him. I mean, he gave him the signet ring. Sure, the king doesn't even know that, yeah, that was his ring used to kill all the Jewish people or, you know, to enact that edict, you know, that Haman did. But at the very same time, man, like, he loved Haman. He, he anointed him to that honor. But he also loves his wife. He also loved Queen Esther. Up to half my kingdom, it will be granted to you. What is your wish? It shall be given to you. The grace he was giving his wife, the, the grace he was giving Haman, man, that's a tough spot to be the king. But kings should be in tough spots. If you're called and raised to be a leader, yeah, you're going to have to make tough decisions, decisions that aren't going to make everybody happy. I know that from experience. <laughs> and so Haman and his fear of harm, he goes to beg for the queen. Because he's like, well, the king's kind of made up his mind already. He just stormed out. He just, he left his wine on the table. I am in trouble. That's probably what Haman said. He's like, oh, he left the wine. I'm, I'm a dead man. And so he goes to Queen Esther and he starts begging and he starts pleading. And then the most ironic of twists happen. The king comes in, Haman falls over the queen. Like, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe his arms were flailing really, really fast and hard. And, but I would think first and foremost, he would get on his knees. And I don't know how you'd fall over the queen if you had gotten on your knees. But again, that's part of pride, right? Like, why would you do seemingly the right thing and begging and pleading for your life for someone in a position of authority higher than you? Technically, technically, queens are higher. Long story. But he pleaded for his life, and then he fell on it. And so you know what Haman did in his last gesture of life? He helped the king make his final decision. That's exactly, and, and all of this. So, so seemingly in our control, but also very, very much out of control. How one step leads to another step leads to another step and how the dominoes just continue to fall down in our lives. And so there is truly, as you see that, and will you and assault the queen, and then they covered his face. And then Harbona, who's from chapter one, one of the king's seven eunuchs, says, hey, you know what's interesting is that Haman came here to try to get you to kill Mordecai and he's got a big old gallows at his house, 50 cubits high, 75 feet, if you will, as big as his pride, probably even smaller. 
but maybe you should use that. Presto changeo, man, that's great that Haman just built that so that he can be killed on the thing he just built to kill someone else. Man, the twists and the turns, I swear you cannot write these things. You cannot imagine them up, but it's the truth of all of our lives because we've all been through crazy, like, you can't make this up. No one's going to believe me if I tell them this story. But you know what? Some people will believe you, and that's an opportunity, right? And so there was no control at all here. One of the king's eunuchs brought that up, and then they just hung him. And so he fell. He didn't get a word in edgewise, didn't get to say anything else, had a bag over his head, shuffled him out the door, hung him on the gallows that he built to kill Mordecai. And so at the end of all this, you see the wrath of the king was abated. The wrath of the king was abated by a death. The wrath of the king was abated by the death of a person. Coincidentally, I know a king who justifiably so has a wrath against sin. And I know a king who graciously so sent his son to die so that we might have an opportunity for new life with him. I know a king whose wrath against sin was abated by death and the death of his son, an offering of mercy for those who are helpless and an offering of grace because we didn't deserve it. There's nothing I've done to make God work for me. I work for God, not vice versa. And it never will be. But there's always that danger of me wanting to flip it on its head because of the curse of sin and trying to make God work for me. But it's never going to be that way. Praise the Lord. And so we see the gospel. And we hear the gospel in this message in just those few little words, the wrath of the king abated, especially by the death of another. In Leviticus, the life is in the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away my sin. It is within this death of the Lord and Savior that we can be forgiven. It is the death of the Lord and Savior and by his blood that we've been redeemed, that we've been bought back from the slavery of sin, or maybe we can call it the slavery of wishes, favors, requests, or the slavery of fear or wrath or harm in our lives. Because don't fool yourselves, you are slaves to those at times. As much as we want to be slaves to God's righteousness on a regular level, our inherent nature proves time and time again that we are a slave to the situations and the circumstances around us. And ultimately what those are are our desires. And so in this world, and praise be to God for this, that because of him sending his son, because of the forgiveness he's shown us, because of the grace he's shown us, because of the mercy he's shown us, all because of the immense agape style, sacrificial, not seeking rest, 
reciprocation type of love that God offers, we can live in confidence in this world because of the promises of who he is and what he's done. Not based on individual merit. Now, I certainly don't speak of lawlessness, but until you had your experience with Christ, you were lawless. You were lawless to God, at the very least, but you were law-filled to yourself based on your own individual desires. But Christ has now set you free so that you are no longer slaves to fear, slaves to wrath, slaves to harm, slaves to wishes, and slaves to expectations and requests and favors and grace. So, I guess we'll leave it like this. Even though we live in a world filled with wishes, favors, requests, fear, harm, and wrath, all of which are filled with an amazing, amazing amount of doubt, overflowing with doubt and uncertainty, overflowing with confusion amidst expectations of ideologies that we may have. We, you and me, in Christ, can live in confidence because of the proven grace and mercy of our Heavenly Father in our lives. Dear Heavenly Father, there's so much to say and just so little time on our hearts and our minds. And Lord Jesus, certainly we thank you for setting us free. We thank you for the salvation that you've wrought us and that you've brought us and that you continue to give us. We thank you for the sanctification by the blessing of the Holy Spirit that is within us. And as we continue to grow in your likeness, Lord Jesus, may we continue to, uh, again, see our rightful calling, see who we are called to be in this story of yours called history or his story. And so while we play small roles, Lord, I trust and know that you are large and that you are over all of these things and that while we play small roles, may we be used impactfully to for your glory and ultimately our good. And for the lives of those around us, may we continue to have opportunities to speak to those around us. May we have continued opportunity to bless those around us. But more so, Lord Jesus, may we continue to have opportunities to speak to those about who you are, what you've done, and just our lives, how they've changed because of your intervention in our lives. And so, Lord Jesus, we don't want to live in doubt. We don't want to live in fear. We don't want to live with just wishes. We want your true hope, and we want your confident expectation. Remind us of that truth. And Lord, we thank you immensely for your mercy. May we continue to develop hearts of gratitude in this moment, rather than hearts of greed, thinking that we continually want things that this world offers. But the best thing that this world offers is you, Lord Jesus. And as much as I would love to just grab people and shake them and be like, wake up, Jesus is real. I know that this is truly a work by your hand, by your grace alone, and your mercy alone. 
And so, Lord Jesus, for those that we love and for those that we know, I just ask that you use us well to reach them, and may we continue to see lives changed for your glory and ultimately our good. And it's in your name we pray until we're with you in heaven. Amen.